listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And don't believe what you hear. Don't believe what you read. That is the message for you with breaking news out of Queen's Park. Surprise, surprise. The phony number was phony. $15 billion. You may recall that shortly after the Ford government took power, they claimed at every opportunity that it was a $15 billion hole that the liberals had left us in. $15 billion. They said at every opportunity they could. And now, it turns out it was $7.4 billion. This according to 2018-2019 public accounts that have just been released by the province. Now, officials attribute the drop in the deficit to better-than-expected revenues because of a hot economy, lower-than-expected expenses. Hey, sorry we got this wrong by $7 billion. Whoops. What? What do you mean, did we do it for political reasons? Here's Peter Bethlen Falvey this morning. He's the president of the Treasury Board. Yes, I think it's fair to remind the people of Ontario that we inherited a, a broken fiscal situation. It's pennies, nickels and dollars that I think we, we're con- we've been working hard at to be able to produce these numbers. But the job is not done and we have a lot of work ahead of us. You missed it by seven billion bucks. You're sp- nickels and pennies? I don't think you need to worry about the change, my friend. If you're listen to this program, if you watch Focus Ontario... I have been saying this since the government began this $15 billion charade. It was a charade. It was an imaginary number used to justify all kinds of political messaging by the government. You remember they every opportunity they could, they said, oh, corrupt. We're going to look into how it is, all this. Where did all the money go? Kathleen Wynne, you got to come in here and talk to this committee. Well, that committee issued its report. You might not remember what it said because it didn't say anything. There was no corruption. There was nothing. And it turns out now that that $15 billion deficit was not as advertised. When you add all of that up, is it any wonder why the federal conservatives don't want to see Doug Ford anywhere? On the campaign trail. Mr. Ford, just be quiet, is what the federal conservatives have been asking. Or have they? Because that very question this morning was put to Andrew Scheer. Uh, that's uh, that's just completely false. Uh, we're going to be all over the province of Ontario, and people who have worked to replace uh, Liberals at the provincial level are obviously going to uh, work to replace Liberals at the federal liberal at the at the federal level. People understand. People in Ontario understand. The very same people who ran Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGuinty's disastrous government are running Justin Trudeau's government in Ottawa. They are following the same playbook. That is Andrew Scheer speaking this morning, saying categorically, no, I'm not trying to avoid Doug Ford. I haven't asked Doug Ford to stay away. Speaking of staying away, the person who was not present was Justin Trudeau last night during the leaders' debate. I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of that. 
I always enjoy watching those things, but both from, you know, a political observation point of view and what they're saying and all that, but also just from a technical TV point of view, because I've worked my whole life in television. So I just, you know, like I, I'm the guy that's like, we're looking at the camera angles going, what in, why is Paul Wells looking off to the side every time he finishes answering, a, asking a question? He's like, he's looking over like, what's, what's down there? Is it a computer down there? Are there a cue card? Is it a, is there a wet bar? What is it? I think it was a monitor off to the side. I don't know if that was distracting you. Probably I'm the only one that noticed that. One of the big announcements that we're going to fact check right now came from the NDP. And so far, in the early going, the consensus has been that Jugmeet Singh has been doing fairly well. He did well in the campaign or in the election uh, debate last night. Not that it really mattered with Justin Trudeau not there. But he's had a couple of good days. Of course, expectations have been very low. Now, this announcement that you heard in the news. Jugmeet Singh and the NDP will place a cap on the amount of money you'll be charged for your cell and internet services. He also wants to force the telecoms to provide true unlimited data plans. Here is Jugmeet Singh this morning talking about what the government would do. We would immediately put in place a price cap on the amount that can be charged for cell phone and internet. We'd impose the price cap based on the average OECD nations and what they charge for cell phone and for internet. Um, This is something that other nations have done and it has effectively brought down the price of medication or price of cell phone services. It's going to save families uh, on average $250 per year, but it could be a lot more for other families uh, that spend more on cell phone and internet. 250 bucks in your pocket, man, that sounds good. You go, you're probably not happy with your cell phone bill. You're outraged. This is populism at its best, folks. Pocketbook issues. But what is Mr. Singh proposing here? Did you hear what he said? He's going to take an average? He's going to take an OECD average and say to the companies, to private enterprise in this country, this is what you get to charge? What does that mean? What does that mean for cell coverage? I mean, if you're you trying to you say, well, we, we pay so much money for cell phones. Well, do we? I mean, can you really compare Canada to, I don't know, Switzerland? Can you compare us to a small European nation? No, you can't because we don't have the density. So now you want cell service. You don't want cell service when you're in Muskoka. You want to go to North Bay. You want to get five bars. You want to get 5G. Well, that requires investment, folks. That's the truth of the matter. Shruti Shikar is a reporter at Mobile Syrup and knows this stuff better than I do. And I don't ever say that about anything, really. But, Shruti, I will admit it. You know this stuff better than I do. Thanks for being on the program. Alan, you're too kind, but I'm about to do a TV hit, so I have to be quick. Oh, okay. Well, I'll get you to TV in just a second. But what, what do you make of, on a high level, what Jugmeet is promising here? So listen, this all seems really good. Price caps are very important. But at the same time, what does that price cap actually mean? If he's going to do an average based off of the OECD countries, what is that going to actually look like in Canada? Uh, One of the concerns or criticisms that people are having is, well, if you're going to have a price cap, big carriers like Rogers, Bell, and TELUS will be able to do whatever they want with a certain amount of money that they're given. So let's say they're going to cap it at $50. Well, what does that mean? 
How much data are they going to give you? What's the 3G, 4G speed levels are they going to give you? Those points have not been really detailed, and that's the concerning part that some critics are saying. Uh, now, on the on the flip side of things, having a price cap might be good, as Jagmeet Singh has said. He said that in Australia, for example, it looks good. It's helped the economy. It's helped uh, consumers. Uh, but we should also take a look at what has happened so far. Uh, in the Liberals, they've already announced that proposed or the directive that would ensure the CRTC would make decisions based off of affordability. Shortly after, Bell tells Rogers came out with those unlimited, quote unquote, unlimited data plans. Um, so, well, how will this look when he becomes prime minister, if he becomes prime minister? I think that's really the looming question that telecom reporters and, and people in the industry are having is, well, what does this look like? You can't just base it off of an average because you have to take into consideration like infrastructure, the, the vast lands that Canada has, and the fact that we aren't able to provide that network coverage for everyone. So I think these are the questions that people are asking, and hopefully, you know, in the coming you know, days, months, and maybe if he becomes prime minister, we'll be able to get a better understanding of that. Shruti, I'm going to let you go. I know you got to do some TV. That's Shruti Shikar <laughs> from uh, Mobile Syrup. Always ha- appreciate having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alan. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, and I want to play what she's talking about in terms of Jugmeet's justification for this. This is where he uh, talks about Australia and talks more about what they're planning to do, the NDP, if they were to form government. In conjunction with a price cap, we're going to ensure two other things. One, a mandatory uh, unlimited data plan that has to be affordable, an affordable, basic affordable plan as well. Uh, that's something we're going to impose. And just to give evidence that this works, we've, we've seen this work effectively in Australia. They put in place a price cap and it brought down the price of cell phone bills and Internet services and it can maintain a high quality of service. Interesting how that will play out. I'm wondering how that appeals to you, if you see that as a populist measure that you can get behind, or if you see that as interfering in the free market. And, you know, he could also say, well, we're going to put a cap on the price of gas, too. I mean, that's expensive. We'll take an average. We'll take the OECD average on the price of gas, and we'll make that the price. Well, obviously, there is going to be... Uh, ramifications for that. You're listening to the Alan Carter Radio Program. When we come back, Andrea Horvath joins us on the radio program. Also, Trina Fraser from Ottawa, cannabis lawyer, a lawyer specializing in the cannabis field, to talk about why Ontario has suddenly now frozen the lottery process for awarding new cannabis stores. We're back in a moment. Ontario judge has now frozen the province's cannabis retail licensing process for at least two weeks. Twelve of the original 42 winners of the August 20th lottery draw were disqualified for failing to submit all the required application materials. And because they have now filed an injunction and a judge has said, yes, I will hear that, they have put the entire system, the entire process has now been frozen. And Interesting, I will just note that one of the applicants that was awarded a potential site in this most recent round was quite a famous area, spot in particular, because where it is, and I know this well because right in my neighborhood, 
It's in the same strip mall where Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals had proposed to open a government-run cannabis store. And during the provincial campaign, Doug Ford, who was leader, opposition leader at that point, said that that was an outrageous place to be, it was far too close to schools, and it would not be allowed. Guess where the lottery chose just recently to put another store? In that exact same strip mall. Now, I'm not certain if that is one of the locations that did not have the proper documentation, but the entire system is now held up and frozen. And to talk more about that, I'm joined by Trina Fraser, who is a lawyer specializing in the cannabis industry. Hi, Trina. Hello. What does this mean that the retail licenses have been frozen? Well, I mean, it, it's really interesting because the motion that was heard yesterday, uh, the applicants were actually only seeking to have, you know, the licenses in respect of their positions stayed by the court until the hearing of the application. But the judge ultimately decided that staying only part of the lottery process would cause chaos and confusion and that it was more sensible to, to, to just freeze everything. So this means that even for the initial winners who submitted everything in time and everything was acceptable and their applications are now being processed in the ordinary um, course, those are frozen as well now for the next two weeks. So it really, you know, I think this this submission was made to the judge, but um, obviously didn't convince him that the staying of the process for two weeks is going to contribute to chaos and confusion because these winners are in the process of, um, you know, finalizing leases and, and, and engaging contractors and designers and, you know, licensing third party brands and, and actually doing all the work necessary to get their stores up and running as soon as possible while they work through the licensing project process with the regulator. And now everything's kind of thrown into um, uncertainty at this point and you know we you know hopefully it is only a two-week delay but of course it's always subject to further order of the court so you know we're kind of all kind of scratching our heads wondering you know what what do we do now what what how far should we proceed what should we pull back on and wait um and and there's going to be you know quite a bit of that confusion for the next few weeks anyway how how high of a, a bar is it in terms of all this documentation? I, I've read some of your tweets over the last couple of months saying that there, it, it's quite onerous, is it not, to be able to be able to um, get everything in place in the timeline that you need? Well, I mean, the first go around with the first twenty five stores, you know, there were there were actual timelines imposed upon opening. This go around, you know, it wasn't about opening. There's no you have to have you were supposed to have possession of your premises by a certain amount of time, but you didn't have the same pressure to open the store. But where the pressure was was really around, the time that you had between winning the lottery and actually getting everything submitted. So you had five business days, basically, to submit all your applications, your application fees, your standby letter of credit for $50,000, your lease agreement. Everything had to be finalized, and, and all of the requisite information had to be submitted and uploaded to the AGCO through their portal. So this is really what the heart of the issue in the application is, the one place where these 11 applicants fell short was getting the original copy of the letter of credit to the AGCO. Uh, and really what it boils down to is when were those five business days that they had to do that, when did, the, when did that start to run? The, the lottery rules say it's within five business days of the registrar notifying the applicant of their selection as a winner. 
And so is that the day that they initially sent an email, but it bounced back? Is it the day that they sent a follow-up letter by courier or mail, or is it the day that the winner actually received that letter? And that's it's really not clear from the rules how you, you know, when that five business day period starts to tick. So that's really squarely the issue before the court. Now, the applicants have also said, you know, if we don't win on that, um, we're going to, you know, we've got a few backup arguments. So one is, you know, the process was was unfair because when you took the position that we didn't send you the letter of credit in time, you didn't give us an opportunity to respond. There was no procedural fairness in how you made that decision of disqualification. And if that argument doesn't work, we're just going to say you didn't have the jurisdiction to even require us to provide a letter of credit in the first place. Trina Fraser is a cannabis lawyer with Brazo Seller in Ottawa, and appreciate you being on the program. Thank you, Trina. Yeah, you're welcome. So interesting here because we have replaced what was going to be a public system, publicly run, publicly owned, staffed by uh, OPSU members. That was the proposal under the Liberals. And we replaced it with a private system that so far has been largely chaotic. The rollout has not been smooth. We've seen stores not be open in time. The provincial government continues to blame the feds for supply issues. But here we clearly have an example of the process simply not working. And now we're frozen and nothing is going to happen. Maybe just for two weeks, but maybe for much longer. And that is a big concern as we try and get to a point where remember what the whole point of this is, is trying to kill the black market. And so if Marijuana is not available in storefronts because of all of this, then we're not going to kill the black market. Moving on to the NDP now. The NDP is at a crossroads right now. Federally, Jagmeet Singh is trying to do what Justin Trudeau managed to do back in 2015, exceed expectations and go from a third-party status to government. In Ontario, with the Ford government down in the polls, the NDP has an opening to build momentum. And to talk about the challenges and opportunities for new Democrats, I'm pleased to welcome to Focus Ontario this weekend and to this radio program right now, the leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath. My pleasure as always, Alan. Early going, your assessment of Mr. Singh so far? Well, I think he was strong out of the gate, to be frank. Uh, Both his launch and uh, the uh, debate last night went very well. I think Jagmeet's uh, set um, some, um, I think, some people's, uh, you know, expectations um, in a a positive way. I mean, I think that he, um, I'm certainly proud of what he was able to do. um, And I think he showed people that there is an opportunity to vote for somebody that's going to be on their side uh, during this campaign. What kind of threat do you see from the Greens? And I'll ask you first on the federal side, and then I'm going to ask you about here provincially. Well, you know what? Uh, there's no doubt that the uh, climate crisis is upon us, uh, and people are very concerned about that. Uh, New Democrats have been very vocal about that. In fact, in our province, we were the party that brought the um, uh, Environmental Bill of Rights to our uh, to our province, and uh, uh, and we are very proud of our record on environment. And uh, I think that um, when people look at uh, um, you know the role of a federal government uh, and the fact that you have to be strong on a number of files, uh, they'll see that New Democrats not only have the 
the credentials when it comes to environment, uh, but also on issues of you know of making sure that everyday people uh, are getting a fair shake and that the uh, the business of the federal government is not just about big corporations and the very wealthy, which is what conservatives and liberals uh, have brought us for for decades now. It is possible that the Greens could supplant the NDP in its third place federally, and meanwhile in Ontario, polling suggests that even though that Mr. Ford is not popular, the leaderless liberals outpoll you. Well, again, I mean, it's not to polls that are, are that important to me at this point. It's the people of Ontario who are being hurt significantly uh, by Doug Ford and his uh, his agenda. I mean, when you look everywhere, whether it's the increasing hallway medicine crisis, whether it's the attack on uh, our educators and the impact that that has on students in the classroom. I mean, kids who are not even going to be able to get to their grade 12 uh, graduation because the courses that they needed to take are not even available anymore. Uh, these are the kinds of things I'm worried about, the long-term care situation. Uh, that's where I'm going to spend my focus. But are, are, should you not be worried more about the Ontario Greens than the Ontario Progressive Conservatives when it comes to the next election? No, no. in fact, uh, what we need to focus on is the people of Ontario and what they deserve as a, as a government. And they deserve, for example, pharmacare. I mean, well, that's something we ran on last time. I'm proud to see Jagmeet's running on that federally. Uh, but look, people shouldn't have to worry about not being able to put gifts under the Christmas tree uh, because of having to pay for prescriptions out of pocket that make everything else unaffordable. Uh, people shouldn't have to be cutting their pills in half at a kitchen table to stretch their prescriptions because they can't afford to refill them. The countdown is on to potential labor strife in our education system with QP support workers already on a countdown towards that. If we come to a point where there is labor strife, would you vote categorically against any kind of back-to-work legislation for uh, school educators, anything like that? Well, I mean, certainly I hope that it doesn't get to that, and that's the job of government. And unfortunately, uh, Mr. Ford picked a fight with education workers and teachers early on. He set the stage uh, for a bitter uh, and ugly process, and uh, unfortunately, that's going to impact students. Uh, I hope that we don't end up in a situation where we're in a strike position. I don't think, uh, I don't think teachers want to do that or educators want to do that. I don't think pupils and students want to see that happen. I don't think parents want to see that happen. But if it does happen, it's because that's the, the road, the trajectory that Mr. Ford put us on early on. Uh, having said that, we, we know my position on the back-to-work issue. Uh, I don't think uh, that uh, it's something that is, um, is something, I don't think it's something we need to do. I don't think it's something that we need to uh, uh, kind of anticipate. In fact, we should be doing everything possible to prevent that situation from occurring. And so if it does occur, just to answer your your question clearly, just like during the campaign, unlike Kathleen Wynne, who said she would rather have people vote for Doug Ford because he would bring in back-to-work legislation, I disagree with that completely. And I say shame on both of them. Uh, you have an obligation uh, to make sure that, uh, uh, that you negotiate these contracts in good faith, uh, that you find a way forward with the, you know, with the bargaining units, with the teachers, with the education workers, and most importantly, you focus on funding our education system in a way uh, that helps our kids uh, to build their best lives, to, to, to be able to grasp all opportunities available because they've had a great education uh, and they can help our province you know, continue to grow and
expand. So even though many people think that that cost you votes, maybe even cost you the whole election, you're going to stand by that. You know, I, I, I don't see that as as the case at all. Uh, but what I what I do believe is that governments have an obligation uh, to uh, you know to try to find the way forward, uh, as opposed to uh, you know to insult uh, teachers, for example, as Mr. Ford tried to do, uh, or to uh, try to fear monger uh, in, in terms of uh, eventual outcomes. It's the government's job uh, to um, you know to to, to negotiate clearly uh, and in a way that's um, respectful uh, and in a way that really is focused on the outcomes that are going to be the best for our kids. It is going to be an interesting couple of weeks. Andrew Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, thank you so much for being on Focus. My pleasure. Focus Ontario airs this weekend, Saturday at 5.30, Sunday at 11.30, also Sunday at 8 a.m., and also midnight. Four airings over the weekend. I recommend watching all of them to really get to soak it all in. When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio program, we will take you to Queen's Park, where Brad Blair, who is the former deputy commissioner of the OPP, will be holding a press conference, which is press conference, pardon me, at Queen's Park, to talk about his ongoing defamation suit against Doug Ford. That's coming up on the Alan Carter Radio program, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back. We have breaking news coming out of Ottawa right now. Global News is reporting that the Director General of an intelligence union at the RCMP headquarters has been arrested and charged under the Secrets Act involving espionage by foreign powers. Sources telling Global News this was an extensive national security investigation. And we can identify the senior RCMP member charged as Cameron Ortis. This is a serious and rarely used charge. He was arrested yesterday in Ottawa. A national security source with knowledge of the situation describes the investigation as serious. Global News has learned that the RCMP believe Mr. Ortis is believed to have stolen a large quantity of information which could compromise an untold number of investigations. Again, this is breaking news. A director general of an intelligence unit within the RCMP has been arrested and charges and charged. The other counts refer to, quote, obtaining, retaining, or gaining access to information and possessing a device, quote, useful for concealing the content of information or communicating, obtaining, or retaining information. He could face up to 33 years in jail if convicted. This continues to develop. We'll stay on top of that. The other thing we're watching is any moment now, Brad Blair, the former deputy commissioner of the OPP, will be speaking at Queen's Park, and we will take you there. But first, more from Focus Ontario. Well, the campaign is underway. Let's talk about the leaders, their strengths, their weaknesses, and the impact of the campaign here in Ontario. Joining me to talk about it is Deb Hutton, a former PC advisor here in Ontario, Omar Khan from Hill & Knowlton, Liberal Insider, and Anne McGrath joins us from Ottawa, many years working with the NDP and now Hill & Knowlton. And Anne, first question to you. A lot of expectations for Jugmeet Singh. Your assessment of the first couple of days of the campaign. 
Well, actually, I would say, um, I might say that he actually went in with very low expectations coming into this campaign. I think uh, one of the things that happened was, uh, you know, a lot of the stories of the last few months in particular have uh, kind of written him out of the picture. And what's happened in the first few days of the campaign is that he has come in with a lot of force, a lot of strength. Um, and I think people are taking... I wouldn't even say a second look. They're taking a first look, and um, it's been pretty impressive. The launch was very, very good. It was professional. It was a very clear uh, uh, message. Visuals were good, um, and his message that he is not like the others and that he's in it for in it for you. I think came out uh, very strongly, and certainly uh, the feedback from the leaders' debate last night, the first leaders' debate, was that he was a surprise. Um, he had a good grasp of the issues. He was strong on his points. He was not uh, overly aggressive, but he he stood his ground. And uh, the, uh, people were very, I think, very proud of the performance that he gave in the debate last night. And I think that's going to cause people now to kind of question uh, what direction this campaign is going to go. So many jokes, Omar, about the plane being hit, the liberal plane, and the left wing of the <laughs> liberal plane. Now, the left wing is damaged. How much threat is there on the left for Mr. Trudeau? Well, first of all, uh, Trudeau Sr.'s plane was also hit by the bus in 1980, and he went on to win a majority government there. So I'll, <laughs> I'll let people read into, what, read, in, read into that what they will. Uh, look, uh, Mr., uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and his team, the strategy is pretty clear. Uh, they need to make this election a binary choice uh, between Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau. And in order to have that be a successful strategy, they need to unite the 60% of Canadians who generally fall into the centre center left camp, the progressive camp in this country, around their banner. And that's why they're going to do things like go hard after Doug Ford's record here in Ontario. Uh, you know, he, he in, in just over one year, he is now more unpopular than Kathleen Wynne was going into the last provincial election after 15 years of Liberal government. That's going to be a big Achilles heel uh, around Andrew Scheer. And that's why I think we've seen uh, Mr. Ford kind of go AWOL the last few weeks. I suspect he's going to try and do that uh, or maintain that silence, let's say, uh, for the next five weeks. Deb, how much of a negative for Scheer is Ford? Well, I would say, first of all, if Justin Trudeau is looking for running against Doug Ford, there actually is an opening in Ontario for a liberal leader. So I would suggest he do that <laughs> instead of run against Doug Ford well, and want to be He's also trying to run against Prime Stephen Minister. Harper at the same time. For... Well, because he won't run on his record, and we all know that. Um, listen, Mr. Scheer came out of the gate so strong this week. He put the, pre the Prime Minister on the defensive by saying, open up the cabinet confidentiality and, and let the RCMP look into what really happened in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. The Prime Minister has not given us a good explanation for why not. And, and so Mr. Scheer very clearly said this is a matter of integrity and I think Canadians will look at it that way. On top of it, Mr. Scheer is uh, so comfortable speaking on behalf of what the middle class and those that are looking to get into the middle class are really feeling throughout the country and has policies to respond to that. Mr. Scheer's problem, though, is going to be some of his candidates. So we saw yesterday uh, a conscious decision on behalf of the leader to stand next to a candidate uh, who had said her number one legislative priority will be to, 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 to move to restrict a woman's right to choose. We see today... Uh, that it's come out that their candidate in Mississauga Streetsville 
uh, was probably dumped by the pro provincial conservative, the provincial progressive conservative party last year because of some alleged Islamophobic or discriminatory Listen, tweets. Mis this is going to be a, this is going to be a problem. Everybody's going to have everybody's a misbehaving. Everybody's going to have a misbehaving candidate. Hands, but the leaders don't choose to. The leaders don't necessarily choose to stand next to them. I, I want to go back to Anne because television. we don't have Let's, somebody so every, here every, talking about the Greens, and I want to ask you about the Greens and how much of a threat is Elizabeth May to Jagmeet Singh and even the party itself being able to finish in third? So uh, I think I have gone into almost every single federal campaign over the last couple of decades being told that the Greens are surging and they're going to eat our lunch and we're going to be wiped out by them. I have honestly heard that so many times from the media, from the Green Party, from well-meaning, sometimes even from well-meaning supporters saying you got to really watch out for this. So I mean I will grant that they are doing better than they have done in the past. Uh, their poll numbers are often high between elections and they don't necessarily, um, that's not what happens during the election but they are doing well they have an experienced leader and you could see that last night and I'm sure we'll see it through the campaign but she does there are some things uh, you know I think their slogan is quite appropriate not left not right because uh, a lot of people I think view them as a progressive party they are not necessarily a progressive party um, they certainly are not uh, don't identify themselves as a pro-choice party um, so I think that for progressive voters many of whom I think uh, uh, left the NDP in the last campaign to vote for the Liberals, uh, where I think that, that you know, there is a lot of disillusionment and disappointment in, in, that, in that decision. Uh, I think that many of them uh, are looking for uh, to whether they'll be coming back to the NDP or whether they'll go to the Greens. And I think that the first few days of the campaign anyway, the, uh, the clear kind of progressive values that the NDP campaign has been putting out, I think will, will attract All many right, of them. All right, and I got to interrupt the you ground. there because we are out of time. It's uh, unfortunate because uh, I know we have a lot more to talk about. But please come back with us on Focus again as we chew I'd it over to. over the course of the campaign. Omar, Ann, Deb, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Alan. Stay with us on the radio program when we come back. As promised, we will take you to Queen's Park, that press conference with Brad Blair just getting underway now. And when he is at the podium, we will go to that. Plus, this question. Would you tear down the fence in your backyard, the fence that you share with your neighbor, just so you could have a bigger backyard? You have to share it. But you get a bigger backyard. Would you do that? I'm going to talk to a columnist who did exactly that coming up. Breaking news from Queen's Park, where former Deputy OPP Commissioner Brad Blair is now announced he's filing a $15 million wrongful termination lawsuit against Premier Doug Ford and former Chief of Staff Dean French and top bureaucrats in his firing. He's holding a news conference right now. He's outlining his next steps in this legal fight. The veteran officer was fired in March after a high-ranking public servant alleged that he'd contravened his legal and ethical responsibilities. Now, Blair has asked the courts to force the provincial ombudsman to investigate the government attempts to hire his, a longtime friend as the OPP commissioner, that being Ron Tavner. And, of course, that all played out. And then, of course, Mr. Blair was fired. And now we can listen in now to him hit Queen's Park. This is former Deputy OPP Commissioner Brad Blair. I have served the OPP faithfully and honorably since 1986, and due to my efforts in safeguarding the independence 
and credibility of the province's largest service from improper political interference, I was fired. My OPP career began on March 24th, 1986 with a posting to Red Lake. It was my dream to become an OPP officer. And I felt a debt of gratitude to the OPP and to the people of the province of Ontario for the opportunity to serve them. You are listening During to my time Brad Blair, I was fortunate to work with the former OPP deputy commissioner who said that it was, quote-unquote, a reprisal is firing. That is what he has said in his quotes. Also, reading now that he is calling appointments made under the foreign government, quote-unquote, corrupt, and has again filed a $15 million wrongful termination lawsuit against Premier Doug Ford and his former chief of staff, Dean French. That story will continue to develop. Our Mark Carcassole, Global News reporter, is at that press conference right now and will have a story for us tonight on Global News at 530, which can be heard right here on this radio station simulcast beginning at 6 o'clock. Quote, The notion of putting money into a house out of love without considering if it's the best way to turn a profit on your own home has become alien in this town. That line stuck out to me in a new column in the Toronto Life magazine talking about taking down a fence in the backyard. Tabitha Southey is a writer and a McLean's columnist and has written a story about what she's done in her own backyard in her Cabbage Town home and joins me on the line. Hi, Tabitha. Hello. So you tore down the fence that you share between you and your neighbors, and what do you have there now? Well, we don't have anything there now. We didn't tear down the whole fence. Our houses are detached, and there's a little three-foot alleyway that widens into that sort of weird six-foot space where the houses get narrower. And we combined our two six-foot spaces uh, which was six by 28 feet. We combined them because the fence was falling down anyway, and a storm took down the last, almost the last bit of it. And then I went in there and took it out and made an outdoor kitchen because we both had our barbecues there anyway. And we were looking at the spend space and thinking that's going to be a lot of money to replace that fence. And nobody ever goes there except to barbecue or have the dog pee. And we uh, took it out. So now you have this shared communal space. It it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to your neighbor. You both use it. Is it how does how do you work that? There's no real working it. Like sometimes she uses it, or they use it alone. Sometimes I use it alone. Sometimes one of my kids use it alone. She's from uh, New Brunswick. She got barbecues fish a lot in the middle of winter, um, so she uses barbecue a lot. There's and she usually does. Uh, message me or I message her and say, hey, I'm waiting the baked green egg or the pizza oven, something that takes a little more effort than one of us, or we'll think, hey, you know what, Let's, uh, I'll come out too. Uh, but there's absolutely no compromise involved in the situation. I just, uh, I just like that our friends have now all met and hang out, which they did a little, but um, now they do more. When you decided to do this, what was the reaction? Let's start with friends and family. Well, we sort of just did it, and what struck me was the reaction when I posted. We had our, our kind of broke it open last year at Thanksgiving and had a whole bunch, about 50 people over, and I posted a picture, on just a happy Thanksgiving picture on Facebook with a couple of lines about the kitchen and people. I was sort of surprised at how odd people found it. 
I mean, there are a few houses in my neighborhood that have just decided not to have any fence at all. Uh, it, it didn't seem that odd to me, uh, but I think people are very protective of some uh, of their space in a in a way that makes the space less fun. And I just and I read that quote, and I think it, it's in your story, and it just grabbed me as a, just a central truth that we sort of we don't believe that we should do anything to our homes that would make it better for us currently if it doesn't somehow make it better in the long term in terms of profit. Yeah, which I think is a real shame. I sort of like it. Sometimes people will post a picture or or you'll see someone's backsplash and it really isn't what you would do and it's not neutral at all. And I just think you go. You do, you, you express yourself through that. And, uh, and it's great to see people just commit to their own aesthetic in a home. So the question I think you probably are, are facing or have faced is, well, what happens if you try and sell it? Or what happens if your neighbor tries to sell it? And, you know, what happens if, I, I don't know, Donald Trump loses the oh. next election and he moves next door to you? What what then? I need a moment. <laughs> no. You know what? We're not really worried. We both really love living where we live, and we are lucky enough to own our homes. Um, periodically, someone will say, can I buy her house, or can I buy Tabitha's house, or J- Jennifer Jameson's house, or my house? And we don't really see it. I mean, I think the two people that didn't even really like each other could share this space. Uh, as I say in the article, there are whole villages that share a kitchen. It's not that weird. Um, so we don't really worry about it, but we're very close. Um, you know, we both have very busy lives and don't hang out together all the time, but periodically I will wake up to a text saying, I'm so glad you're, neighbor, you're my neighbor, and so sometimes I'll send the same text. Tabitha Saudi is a writer and McLean's columnist and joined me on the program to talk about a new shared outdoor kitchen. It sounds just absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Come to the next barbecue. <laughs> I certainly will. All right, we have just a little bit of time here for some animal stories. We love the animal stories uh, on the program, and they don't always turn out well because this is real life. I will take you to Virginia, where authorities say a yak on its way to the butcher's shop escaped to the nearby mountains, avoiding animal control officers and treats trying to lure it back to a trailer. The escape was called in as livestock on the loose. And originally they thought they were looking for a cow, but no, it's a yak. The yak was last spotted Wednesday at an inn where the owners tried unsuccessfully to lure it into a trailer using treats. You go, yak. You go. In Columbia, South Carolina, a little piggy that should have stayed home. The state reports for the fourth time, Leroy, a Vietnamese pot-bellied pig, wandered over to Brennan Elementary School in Columbia, South Carolina, leading officials to slap McGregor Wallace with citations for owning a pig within city limits and having a fugitive pet. Wallace is scheduled for a court appearance in October. Apparently, Leroy is an emotional support animal. It's an emotional support pig, folks. To Berlin, and I love this headline. This is the actual headline. Berlin Panda Babies Thriving and Cute. Well, that's... I did not see that coming. Are you telling me that panda babies are cute? I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. And I always, always enjoy an alligator or a crocodile story. You know this. In Stockholm, 
A Swedish newspaper says a man who was bitten by a crocodile that once belonged to the late Cuban leader Fidel Castro has had his arm amputated. Alligators? Socialist alligators. Commie alligators. you got to watch out for them, folks. (laughs) 